Touch it with my beard. Your beard? Yeah, the beard. Did you hit record? Yeah, I did hit record. We're recording. All right. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Seriously Narrative, a Warhammer podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Renee. And we're coming to you straight from the dungeon. It's not a dungeon. It's our game room. Okay, but it looks like a dungeon. It's it got dungeon doors. Yes, but it has windows and doors that you can see out of. They lock from the inside and the outside. Hey guys, so this is our first episode and we're super excited. We finally got all this equipment in. We've been waiting for it for so long and we just wanted everything to be perfect before we started recording the first one. So who are we? First of all, I well, I'm Matt and I've been playing Warhammer since 1998. Now, I can remember it was my sweet 16 birthday party. Yeah, it was. It was my sweet 16 birthday party. And uh, one of my friends brought over Warhammer Fantasy Battles, the Bretonians versus the Lizardmen box set. And uh, we played a game and I instantly fell in love with it. And he said, oh, well, you want these stinking Bretonians? Because I'm never going to use them and I hate them. And I was like, oh my God, I do. Uh, A week later, I was coming out of the Warhammer shop in the mall with I don't know, like maybe $130, every single penny that I had saved and up until then. <laughs> I can remember I bought bought the Green Knight, I bought Louis, I bought a bunch of Grail Knights, and I, just a bunch of stuff. Back then you get a crap ton for $135. But anyway, so that's how I got into Warhammer. Uh, how did you get into Warhammer? Well, we were talking about this. I'm trying to figure out and... At first, we were talking about maybe it was my Blood Angels, but I think it was fantasy. I think I did some Lizardmen. I know that you painted some Lizardmen back back in the day, like when we were dating. Oh, yeah. We dated in high school. We're married now. And we've been happily married for... Almost 16. Okay, almost 16 years. By the way, if you hear our cat in the background, she's pretty vocal. She just wants to be a part. That's all. We've got three kids, by the way, and one of them even plays Warhammer. Oh, I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. Definitely, definitely. That's when you got into Warhammer. Is there anything particularly memorable about it? Like I can remember very clearly that day just playing with those models and seeing them and thinking, wow, these are so nice, so detailed. Like I'd never, I'd never seen anything precisely like that before. I did put together other models, like little ships and planes and stuff. And I enjoyed that a lot, but I never... I never thought about painting them. And that was the first time I got into really painting. Well, I think that's what drew me to the hobby was the painting aspect because I'm very creative. So the idea that I got to choose what colors to paint these lizardmen, which with lizardmen, it doesn't really matter what color. Like you can pick whatever. They can be as creative as you want them to be. There's oh, nothing, yeah. you know, you're not going to walk around with, you know, blue skeletons. <laughs> no. Or pink skeletons or anything like that. But with lizard men, you could choose all these things. And I learned about um, washes and and things like that and highlights. And Actually, if you want to know, I learned about washes from you. At the time, she was a better painter than me because her mom would teach her how to paint stuff. And I never had anybody you know, really teach me how to paint. And so she was like, here, look at this technique that I'm doing. And she washed this model. Well, I say wash. Like she put you know, some sort of shade on the model. And then I was like, Oh my God, that looks so good. Oh, it was, it was, it blew my mind when she did it, honestly. 
And I mean, ever since then, uh, we've just been sort of often a, a little bit more on in the last maybe decade or so, but kind of off and on college was hard for us to, to do this kind of thing, constantly moving. And then after college we had crappy jobs and we weren't, you know what I mean? You, yeah. We just weren't financially at a spot where we could buy models all the time. And heck yes. Yeah, sometimes I had to sell armies and that was, Oh, ripped my heart out. Anyway, I have another question for you. Why, why this hobby as opposed to any other, like why, why this hobby as opposed to video games or. Well, I think for me, because I'm not just this hobby, I'm a very eclectic person. So I jump around to a lot of different things. So I'll be in the mood to play video games and I'm in the mood to play, you know, role playing games or play board games. It just, I go through cycles of what I want to do. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I would have liked to do with this. But what I found was, <laughs> and the reason why I stopped playing Warhammer for a little while is because I really got into MMOs, massive multiplayer online role-playing games. And that worked right up until we had our first kid. And it still worked. At first, they're not doing anything, not getting anything. And then all of a sudden, you've got this like toddler who... You can't just say, hold on, I'm going into a raid. Hold on, I, I need I need to spend this six-hour chunk of time doing this or that or the other well, thing. Well, when they're hungry, they're hungry. Or when they're getting into something or when they need to get up at 7 in the morning, but you're trying to stay up until 4 in the morning. To do what a I, raid. <laughs> yeah, right. But what I'm trying to say is that when I, what I found was that I could sit down and paint and then immediately put it down. I could put the paintbrush down at any point in time when something happened, something went wrong, or an obligation came up, like cooking or cleaning or, you know, having fun with the kids or doing anything. I didn't mind doing it. It was easier to put down, easier to pick up, and I could do it at whatever hours I wanted to because it was just painting, and you know, well, I played you, every once in a while. You could also take it wherever you wanted, so... If we went on vacation, you could take painting supplies with you and paint. I totally did that, too. I, I took my Lord of Skulls on uh, vacation in 2013 and painted that sucker up over, like, I don't know, like four or five days. Oh, that was the best. Sat on a, a deck, and I, everybody else was, like, just relaxing, and I was painting up a storm. It was great. It's like your perfect vacation. Yeah, it is, really. So that's why I like this hobby and I kind of like her sort of go through cycles, but I've, I've made very clear expectations for myself. No MMOs, no, nothing that's like a huge time sink. Nothing that's a, I did play, you know, 2000 ish hours of total war Warhammer one and two, but I don't regret that decision. Well, that was after our kids. I mean, our kids are older now. They're not as dependent on us for basic necessities, I guess. It's just as you get older and as the kids get older, I found that this is a good hobby because my eldest, Evelyn, she totally is into this game. She's playing with me now in an AOS league and a 40K league. And and that's kind of our, our other two. They really like it, but they're a little bit still young yet. Perrin, not, maybe not so much. He's, he's my 12-year-old. He's sort of more into video games and Minecraft and things that boys at that age are into. Uh, but he still likes to paint and play on game nights, and he really loves Dungeons and Dragons, things like that. And um, Elaine really, uh, she wants to play so badly, but she's just a little young at 10. 10 is just a little too young. I've got she her. She likes the painting. idea of it. She just doesn't quite have the, what is the word I want to use? Concentration or the. Yeah, she just doesn't quite have it down yet. 
she can paint though. I mean, she does a good job and she's creative like me. She likes the painting aspect and yeah, so that's what we like to do. So let's get a little bit about what this show is going to be about because I have clear expectations for the show and I definitely want to make sure that we're not just rambling on and on about this or that or the other thing. So go ahead. Why don't you list off all the things that we're going to talk about in this show? Well, I'm sure this is going to change as the show evolves, but our ideas right now is we want to talk a little bit about our painting and our hobby, what we're working on at the moment. We want to talk about what we want to achieve with this podcast. What are our ideas for this podcast? We want to talk about what it means to be seriously narrative. What does that mean to us? Why did we name our podcast that? We're going to talk about our own narrative battle. And then we're hoping for every podcast to have a question and answering time. Maybe a question that we've thought up that people might be interested in, or maybe further down the line in future podcasts, if we can get other questions from people who would like to hear our opinions on something. And it's not so much going to be about like, well, what's the question for this? Okay, well, this is the answer and it's definitely this and anybody else who doesn't like this or have this answer is wrong. Well, we'll probably ask questions that are gray, like they feel kind of gray. Maybe rules is written. It doesn't feel quite right. Rules is intended. It feels right, but that's not how it's written. And then we'll talk about like the how it would affect the game if you played one or the other way. So yeah, the question answering time is going to have a more classical view on argument, a definitive answer at the end of each question. Sometimes it'll just, we'll just say, well, it might be better for the game in this way. If we do it this way, it might be better for our game in this way or our narrative. If you do it the other way. Well, the questions don't have to be about games either. I mean, they could be about hobbying aspects. It could be about narrative aspect. Oh yeah. It could be like, who would win if blank fought blank? It could be anything. Uh, it doesn't or just matter like to a me. question like, how do you decide on names for your characters? I, I roll on have. the chart, duh. That, doesn't everybody roll on the sacred chart of chaos names? I would. Yeah. Okay. I can't think of names. Mm-hmm. That's how we got our children's names. Simple, easy, fun. We did not roll on a chart. <laughs> yes, I know. We didn't roll on the chart. All right, well, I think that's going to wrap it up for our intro. Um, Let's go ahead and get right into Hobby and Paint, shall we? Sounds good. Okay, let's move along to the hobby room. What army or armies have you been most interested in lately, Matt? Well... I've been most interested in painting corn because that's what I really love to play lately. My army? <laughs> she just, she's staring at me with like a dagger. Yeah, this is exactly what she was supposed to say because that's what she's been interested in lately. No, let me ask you first. How about you? Because you actually are interested in the corn. I am. Corn is what I've been interested in. And bef- why is that? I don't know. It was kind of out of the blue. I didn't expect to want to play corn, but before that I was playing Lizardman. Yeah, she has a half painted Lork Croak up there. Well, he's a little more than half, I think. But anyways, I was playing them in the new AOS and I didn't like all the magic part of AOS. So I was like, let's do the complete opposite and let's go with corn. Blood for the blood god. Heck yeah. So what models are you, you know what? 
Let's not talk about what models you've been painting because I know that you've not painted any models in the last two weeks. Did we mention that I go through cycles? Okay, but yeah, she's playing Dead by Daylight right now and she's been killing people on it. So we're going to try and get her to get at least promise us some paint on some model. What paint on what models are you going to get on? I don't know. I don't know if there's any corn models left to paint because you stole them all. Oh, so... I've been generously painting some of her corn models. You know, yeah. I'll probably work on the... She's flailing her arms back and forth. Uh, the cheerleaders, the wrathmongers. Yes, the wrathmongers. That's, that's what they're called. Yeah. Matt has started painting them, but I think I'm going to take over. They were the ones I was excited to paint. I only painted their skin, the first part of their skin, and then I put a wash on their skin, and that's it. Like, that's all I've done. So, she's still got lots of work to do on them. I just didn't want to play with them without getting something on them, you know? I had to, they had to earn some color, you know? Did they earn any color? Oh, yeah. T- tonight, they took down a uh, troglodyte. Troglodon? Whatever that skink priest riding big old monster is. Yeah, they took it straight down. They did they did 11 wounds to it. Wow. After they charged it. Yeah, they're serious. They're pretty serious. Okay, so let me ask you, since we know I haven't been doing much hobby progress lately, what models have you put together or converted recently? Well, I put together, well, I didn't put together, but I did paint Mother. We'll get into Mother later. Mother is our bloodthirster that my friend Justin printed out on his 3D printer for us. Oh, it looks really cool. The sculpting and everything is, I mean, really top notch. I just love it. Love, love that thing. And I, one day I was really, really frustrated because I was playing Dead by Daylight as a killer, just trying it out and everybody was running from me. I wasn't getting anything done. So I channeled all of that rage into that bloodthirster and just painted her right up in like two days. I, I, I want to say I spent maybe eight hours one day and then six hours the next and just from start to finish. She is a beautiful model. Uh, before that, I I watched the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies. And every time I do, I'm always like, oh, I want a dwarven army. Oh, it's it just tugs at my heartstrings. And because that's what I really like to play in like Dungeons and Dragons, things like that. I love dwarves and I wanted a dwarf army. So what I did was I made an all cities of Sigmar dwarf army. Complete. They look cool. Yeah. Especially cause I, I took the, the hippogriffs. No, that's not what they're called. They're called, um, ah, they're like hippogriff riders. Sounds right. And I, I put dwarfs on them. So instead of like knights with lances, there's put the fire slayers with the two handed pole arms on them. And they're just like, standing on their backs and I painted them up to look like tigers. So they're, I call them my thunder cougar falcon birds. Yes. Uh, I've heard that one too many times in the last couple of weeks. Everybody likes a thunder cougar falcon bird because they don't shoot lightning. They are tigers, not cougars. They're not falcons. They're actually have, supposed to be half eagles and they're not technically birds because they don't have wings. Thunder cougar falcon bird. Okay. Anyway, if you say so. I, that army was really fun to paint up. Because, and I, I ordered some like dwarven um, mail order brides from Europe. It was just a unit of 10 dwarven hammer women. And they were real fun to paint up. 
just a little bit of a different sculpt. And what else have I done recently? My skull throne thing. Yeah, the skull throne. I put that together and I put... Mother's throne. Yes, mother's throne. Anyway, I put that together and started painting that. So that's at least... I'd say that's about three quarters of the way done. Really only needs a couple more highlights and uh, a dry brush or two and it's done. Oh, and maybe some blood for the blood god. By the way... (laughs) I know we call it a Warhammer podcast. We're talking a little bit, well, a lot of it about AOS, but we're talking about 40K too. I like 40K. I actually, that, that reminds me, I bought, painted up, or put together and painted up 10,000 suns. No, a unit of 10 rubrics. That's what I should have said. So I wanted to make sure you didn't think I put together 10,000 suns. Yes, 10,000 suns. <laughs> oh. I was going to say, you mentioned that we'll talk about AOS and 40K, but... We'll also talk about other things. I don't know if we'll ever get into like Kill Team or or anything like that, but we do like the Warhammer board games. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was talking to my daughter on the way to the hobby shop today because we were playing AOS, and uh, we got on the subject of midlife crisis and, because we were we saw like a like a convertible or whatever, and I said, Evelyn my midlife crisis will never involve a fancy car because that's just not what I'm into. I don't really care about cars. They're just, they're just transportation for me. I told her my midlife crisis would be like ordering a Titan maniple from forge world and then playing Adeptus Titanicus with like full forge world models. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my midlife crisis. It probably would cost about the same. No, it wouldn't. Those cars cost like $60,000. I could I could get a couple of Titan Maniples for a measly, what, like $10,000, $20,000? That's nothing, right? Okay, so now that we've talked about models that we've put together and painted, we're also going to try to do a hobby tool segment. So we want to talk about a tool that we think is an MVP, something that we work with or use that we really enjoy and maybe give you guys some ideas. So Matt, why don't you start us off and tell us what your pick is for this podcast? All right. So this pick is going to be the wet palette. I know a lot of people talk about wet palettes, but a lot of times whenever I hear wet palette, they say, it's good. Get it. Get one. Because you'll like it. You'll really enjoy it. Your paint won't dry out. And well, let me ask you, Matt. Why should you get one? Well, let me talk a little bit about the, what I have. Uh, because at first, I was just using... You know how GW has this little... The little... The box that tufts come in for oh, the GW? the blister pack for yeah. tufts. So I took the tufts out and used them. And then I used the blister pack as a wet palette. I just kind of put a, a paper towel in made it wet and then I cut out a square of parchment paper in and put it, it in there. Parchment paper or wax paper? Uh, I think I tried to use wax paper at first, but then I just ended up using parchment paper. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. The parchment paper worked well. And I don't know, that was kind of a good DIY type of thing. It was very cheap. I didn't, you know, everything was already at the house and I wore, I used that for some time. And then one day for my birthday, my beautiful wife bought me the army painter palette from high tide games. And that's the one that I've been using ever since. 
And let me tell you, there are some good things about it, I will say. I do have to, about every week or so, I do have to clean it out. Now, one thing they don't tell you about these paint palette things is that they get a little bit funky after after about a week or so. The water that's inside of there, it either dries out, which that's fine, or it kind of gets a little bit slimy. And when it gets slimy, that's when you have to kind of take it into the bathroom. You got to wash it out with soap, and the soap really doesn't go, come out of the little foam thing that they give you very well. But That's why they have the replacement pack that just comes i think it comes with two foam liners and extra paper so you can replace the foam yeah and and i did eventually i think the first one lasted the first foam one i tried to make it last a little too long and that lasted about nine months until it was just too funky and then the second one i made last like a much more manageable four months before i replaced it and i'm on my third one now yeah so also one thing they don't tell you is that if you, if you get like, if you let it dry out and there's paint on it, that paint will make it really hard. Like that'll just be a hard spot on the little foam pad, but the papers, I don't know. I, I haven't, they come 50 in a pack and I've run through maybe 58 or 60 of them, or I'd say 50 came in the pack when we bought it and 50 came in the recharge pack. And I just use them all the time. I have no qualms about just throwing it away and grabbing a new little piece of, it's just parchment paper that's cut to the specific size. It's a little different than parchment paper, but actually, yeah, yeah you're right. It's more like rice paper. That's actually more what it feels like. Yeah. Cause it's a it, little thinner. It, the water permeates through it differently than just parchment paper. Yeah. I it's agree. like a thinner parchment. I will say I'm, I have, many times come back the next day and just pulled off the top, stirred the little place where I mixed up some paint with a little bit of flow improver or water or whatever, and just kept using it the next day. It's no problem. But I would say after about like a week or so, you really have to wash it out and there's just no ifs or ends or buts about it. You just gotta, especially if you paint a lot, like I paint a lot, a lot. Well, I think the thing about the wet palette is it helps you to not waste as much paint. GW paints are not cheap and they don't put a whole lot in there. And I'd say I went from using three pots per army to about one pot per army painted, like fully painted army of whatever it is. So like if I'm painting Thousand Suns, then I'm going to go through one pot of thousand suns blue for the entire army whereas before i'd probably at least go through two maybe even three yeah so it definitely has saved me money on paints i agree and that is the mvp tool of this podcast a wet palette but i want to i want to point out that when i was just using my little diy oh your diy one yeah my diy one it it worked fine. There was no, I had no problems with it. I, and you know, I, I would just take the paper towel and throw it away after with the, with the other thing and just get a new paper towel. So I kind of missed that a little bit. About <laughs> the foam isn't bad though. Yeah. It's really nice.
Let's move on to the meat of this episode and talk about our mission statement and what we want to do with this podcast. What is seriously narrative? And and the question really is, what does it mean to be seriously narrative? Well, I would say that our tone is narrative, but our play is serious. And that sounds kind of kitschy, but I have a feeling that it's how most people play. Because when you sit down to make an army, unless you're in a very tournament mindset, a lot of times you're like, oh, I, these, these, these units are really good, so I'm going to pick up some of these. And then you look over and you say, this unit is not maybe so good, but man, do they look, does it look really good and I really want to paint it up. So you get one of those and then you look over and you say, oh, that's going to be a great centerpiece model. I'll probably never play with it, but man, is it going to look good on the shelf? So you pick up one of those too. (laughs) If you're like that, well, that's how I kind of tend to be. Hence the cases of models painted (laughs) Yeah, we have a ton of painted models in our house. Tons and tons. Well, I mean, who who wouldn't want to paint a highlight model from an army, even if it's 600 points out of a thousand point army and you're never going to play with it. It's cool. You want to paint it. Yeah. Like you want to paint that Lord Croak because it looks fantastic. Or you want to paint that Archeon. By the way, one of my best friends bought me an Archeon for Christmas one year. And I didn't know that I wanted that model so much until I actually got it in my hands and painted it up. I've only ever played with it one time in my entire life, but man, was that model so beautiful. It was, and I love it to death. It sits in my care. I'm not my care. It sits in my, what are those things called? Detolf? Yeah. It sits in my Detolf right in stock middle, precisely at the point that I always look over. Every time I walk by, I'm like, I love that model. Same thing with uh, like my great unclean one or my corn warrior. I mean, sorry, <laughs> or my bloodthirster that we now call father. The guy standing up on the rock with the sword in the blue armor. He's a space Marine. Oh, 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 you mean Gilliman? Yeah, Gilliman. Yeah, I loved painting Gilliman. I spent a solid 50 hours painting Gilliman. And he looks really good. Oh, thank you very much. He may be a smaller model, but it's just one of those models that you just have to paint. Oh, yeah, because one of my first Space Marine armies that I actually painted to completion to like a a standard that I would say is absolutely battle ready and a couple of units were actually showcase ready was Ultramarines. But I think we are kind of going more toward the hobby room and moving away from our mission statement. Uh, You're right. You're right. Let's let's circle back around here. Let's circle back around. My wife loves the corporate lingo, by the way. When I talk about mission statements and circling back around and synergy, I wanted to call this part the mission statement because I wanted to have a mission statement for the podcast. I just didn't, I didn't want you guys to think that this is just another podcast where another guy in a room talking about Warhammer or talking about whatever. I spent a lot of thought thinking about what's this going to be? What, what are we going to talk about each set, each time we roll around? How are we going to differentiate ourselves from other podcasts and things like that? I came to the conclusion that I definitely want to be positive. I am a pretty positive person and I get a lot of joy out of this hobby as we kind of all do, or at least most of us do. And one of the things that I love to see, I love to be able to commiserate with my opponent if they're having a poor time, if they're like either losing or losing models or rolling poorly or whatever it is. I, you know, 
I commiserate with them and I share in their victories. I never make anybody feel bad for beating my pants off or anything like that. And, and I really hope that my opponent would do the same to me. It's just all about trying to have as much fun as you can with however the dice roll in your game. And if you lose, you lose. Who cares? As long as you had a memorable moment or two. And if you win, well, great. Excellent. You should feel elated. And your opponent should never try to make you feel bad about that. Yeah, I mean, we play to win, but at the same time, we play to have fun. So we're not going to be so serious that we're not having fun. Definitely. And I want to say that all of the games that we play together and a lot of the games that I play down at the shop or put together with the AOS League, I want to try to make it so that each player has a clear path to victory in every game. It's never, you're never going to look at the the game board and say, oh, that player is never going to win no matter what he does. You want there to be a clear path to victory for both players. And then it's just like, well, whatever your strategy is and whatever your dice rolls are, those are the things that influence the game. Not, well, I brought a tournament list and it's going to throw, you know, 20 or 30 mortals at you a turn and that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. There may be a clear path, but I rarely see that path. <laughs> and Let I'm fine with that. <laughs> she says that, but she is a stone cold killer when it comes to games. No, I'm not. <sighs> so why don't you talk about some of our influences into podcasts? Sure. Well, I started listening to independent characters a long time ago in, I don't know, 2013? Yeah, 2013 or so, and instantly fell in love with them. I really enjoyed their positivity. I don't like to, you know, I don't want to say, oh, I'm going to copy a bunch of stuff from different podcasts, but I will have influences from podcasts because that type of positivity is something that I can definitely get behind. And then when I met Bill from Rolling Bad, I really loved how he had this he had this excellent and also very positive, I might say, take on the game and the hobby. And it was a very it was a very Western take because, you know, he is in the West and we're good friends to this day. But I've also listened to Garage Hammer and I enjoy that very much. At least when it's positive, I enjoy it. And I especially liked it when when Dave would do these, he would do like narrative voiceovers for Warhammer books. Like the very first episodes that I listened to of them were when they were doing the End Times episodes. And it was so great. It blew my mind when he would read those those little shorts. And I was like, oh, that's so great. That's something that I really want to do. Maybe not for GW stuff, for, but, you know, for my own narrative I also listen to Masters of the Forge because that's pretty awesome. And I listen to Lords and Heroes because, ah, uh, got to, you've got to. Donna's awesome. And I listen to Shrine of Chaos, which is pretty interesting because the first time that I ever met uh, Dave was at Nova Open. And I, I remember it was like, I think it was in 2017. And Renee and I went up to the lounge when it was a, an actual lounge, the charity lounge that they had, got ourselves a drink and sat down, looked across from us. There was like maybe one or two other people. And then there he was, he was just sitting there and we had a, a, a chat. Like one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about him is that we, we sat there and we talked for like, I don't know, maybe like 30 or 40 minutes and dude was awesome. There was a very pretty girl that was going around trying to get people interested in buying this, that, or the other thing that she had like on her and everybody, you could just see the guys in the room. They kind of like, 
shifted their eyes away from her because, oh, she was, she was real pretty. And she, you know what I mean? She was real intimidating. And then a little while later, this guy came around with like buttery nipple shots and he's like, listen up, you're going to buy these buttery nipple shots. You're going to buy one. You're going to buy one and you're going to buy one and you're going to buy one too. And we all did because that guy was hilariously in our face about it. It was good shot too. I want to say he was dressed up, but I don't remember what he, was it a Viking or maybe he had a kilt on? I know that maybe he was the Scotsman from Samurai Jack or something. I can't remember. Uh, we, we may have been slightly inebriated at that point. Just a little, just a little bit, but yeah. So I, I also like to listen to splinter mind because I love dark Eldar. Dark Eldar where I was actually my first 40 K army. If you can imagine. And I loved dark Eldar. I can remember, scrimping and saving every little bit of money that I had and going into that games workshop store in the mall. And I would buy just blister packs, one or two blister packs. I wanted Incubi so bad, but they were so, they were the most expensive blister pack because they always came either two or three to a blister pack. So I tried to make them out of spare dark Eldar head parts. And I had some seated legs from the old chaos Knights kit. I used that and some like space Marine body parts because somebody gave me some space. I was, it was an awful, awful kit that I just butchered. I, I still have that model because or at least one of them, I like to bring myself back to, Hey, this is what I used to be. So you got to look back and remember your lessons that you learned. Oh yeah, most definitely. So that was, yeah, Dark Eldar. I can remember also going to Games Day 1999, I think, in Baltimore. And that was the first time that we ever went to any type of convention or anything. And we were just blown away. We would just roll up to a table and put our miniatures down as poorly painted as they might have been and get a game with other people that just had painted miniatures. And it was so amazing. I I remember that weekend very fondly. We got lost when we were trying to go back to the from the convention to our hotel room. You're going on a tangent. You're supposed to be talking about podcasts. Yeah, okay. If you want to talk about Eldar and convention and stuff, you need to put it in with the About You section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I like to listen to TFG Radio as well because they they tell some pretty funny stories I know they're kind of a little bit matched play-ish, but man, do they tell some funny stories. I like the battle hosts because they believe that treating your opponent with respect makes you a better gamer, and I believe that as well. Agreed. I definitely like that. Are there are there any podcasts that you specifically like to listen to? I don't listen to all of those. I mean, I've listened to a lot of independent characters podcasts with you. I like listening to them. And when we drove out to New Mexico a year ago to pick up your mom, we listened to a lot of Rolling Bad on the way Well, we have to. Yeah, we definitely. It comes with the territory. Yeah, we we really like listening to that on the way out. But yeah, I'd say probably independent characters in Rolling Bad are my top two. Exactly. Who are our non-podcast influencers? Well, you definitely have a few that you watch. I mean, I watch with you as well. One that we've been getting into lately is Tabletop Titans. I love Tabletop Titans. On YouTube. Yeah, they're on YouTube. If you think about their premise... It's not really that novel. I, you know, they're, they're doing battles on YouTube and they're filming it and they're showing it. 
So why them over, say, anybody else? They exemplify what I want in a game between friends. They commiserate with their opponent when they roll ones and they laugh along with each other and tell each other good job when they roll really well. They never get angry or upset or anything with with their friends or the people that come on. They just laugh and have a good game and they kind of talk smack but all the smack talking is like in character you, you know he's always like oh yes i'm the i'm the biggest war boss and i'm just gonna get you now and his character his opponent's like oh no but i'm a farseer and i'm going to see right through you wonderful I, voice yeah i know i'm sorry but that's why i really love them is because the camaraderie that they have is what i'm always trying for when i play a game also i love how they chuck dice they just chuck it right into that dice box i mean they really just wind up and wing this you know what i mean i do Mm -hmm. it's great half the time it goes out but that's that's the good part about it i also watch mini wargaming because mini wargaming is sort of like that but kind of light they're a little bit more they're more of a teaching like showing you how an army works Kind of, and they kind of, they kind of have a formula for it. It's not so much like, well, let's just hit record and let's go. It's very polished, I will say. They they seem very polished. I really like Gorilla Miniatures because Ash is very much about teaching. That man taught me how to play Blackstone Fortress. He taught me how to play, uh, what's that other game that I have um, that we haven't played yet? But he Curse City. Yep, he taught me how to play Curse City. He taught anytime I want to know how to play a board game that gw comes out with i go to that channel because he does a pretty good job of teaching me by showing me and and i love that also he doesn't give any spoilers when he teaches like he'll say okay well we're gonna do the introduction we're not gonna talk about anything else i'm just gonna show you how it works and i'm gonna try to read as little as possible from the story and I that's love nice that. i definitely love it and i watch a little two plus tough and Things like that. Whenever I get the chance, you know? Yep. They're pretty cool. Whenever so, you have any free time after all that podcast yeah. listening and YouTube watching. Yeah, I do watch a lot of YouTube battle reports and a lot of, I listen to a lot of podcasts because I like to paint and I like to listen while I paint. It's fun. Well, it's nice when you're also in the car to listen to podcasts. So let's get into a little bit about, talk about how we narratively build our armies. That's That's kind of, this is going to be an example of, how we narratively build it. So let's talk about your corn. When you were interested in it, how did you decide what we bought for this corn army? At first, you have to really look because obviously you're going to need battle line units. So you have to figure out what you want to do with that. Even before that, you need to decide on your sub faction. Um, I chose Blades of Corn, and then you can figure out battle line from there. I guess that's probably the least narrative that you can choose among your army. Because you don't normally have very many choices for battle line. And depending on your points, you have to have a certain number of them. Yeah, it's true. And who doesn't have the first half of the starter kit from when Age of Sigmar first started? Because those things were just, you could find them everywhere. I had one of those. So, of course, we had 10 Blood Warriors, a Korgrath, and 20 Reavers. And a Blood Secretor. Yeah. And a Mighty Lord of Corn. So then I guess once I figured out my sub-faction and figured out a battle line, then it came to figuring out who I wanted to be my general. And then that's when I kind of, I don't know, out of the blue came up with having mother. Mother and father are never in the same army, 
but I like the idea of having a mother and a father. So there's mother and there's father. And I call them Maja and Faja because hello, Maja. Hello, Faja. You're weird. Did I mention that? I am not weird. And I think that it's really cool that since she calls them mother and father, that's what the mortals call them. But like their true daemon names are Maja and Faja. And the, the stupid mortals are like, oh, yeah, that's mother and father. Yes. Even though you're building narratively, you do need to build to win to a certain point. So you don't want to just throw whatever in there. So then I got to thinking about how I could synergize the, the army. So then I got the blood secretor. Plus one attacks in 16 inches. Yes, we all know the blood secretors. And then I was like, well, then there's Wrathmongers. Yeah, another plus one attack within wholly within eight inches. We know that's good. So I could pile in those attacks. I'd say one of the main things that that army lacks is probably, well, it lacks multi-damage attacks. It's heroes attack crappily, unfortunately, except for obviously the bloodthirsters. It lacks rend for the most part. A lot of their rend is minus one or nothing. I think, yeah, from, well, you'll hear about our battle we had later on, but that's what I came back from that battle thinking is like the rend is just not there at all. Yeah, because... She was using her Reavers as the ones that didn't have the axes, so she didn't have any rend on those. And I think that if it was between rerolling ones to hit and having a little bit of rend, having minus one rend, she'd definitely rather have minus one to rend, right? Yeah. Wrathmongers have minus one to rend. That's good. But when she gets them in, it's it's hard to say, oh, well, if you get them in and commit them, they could be slaughtered. And then after that, it's like... Mm. And then I lose that plus one attack. Yeah, you have a bunch of, we bought like 30 Blood Warriors for this army because Blood Warriors are really good. I think they're good. They've got a good save. They clap back for a mortal wound on a six. They attack, even if they kind of counter some of the units that I think are really good in this edition, like zombies, for instance, because I was playing the other day again with Blades of Corn. Because By the way, um, these armies that we play with, like she could play with any of my armies and I could play with any of her armies. We don't really care who we're not plays that with possessive no we're not possessive at all so i was playing with a friend and um he put his 40 zombies on the board and then i put 10 blood warriors right in front of them like to where they just couldn't miss me and i said hey either charge me with your zombies or i'm going to charge you with these blood warriors i know these blood warriors are going to die to your zombies but i also know i'm going to take out a lot of zombies and i did because you know they attack yeah they they hit they hit back and they also attack on death in the combat phase so yeah i feel like that's one of the best units in the army even though it doesn't have it doesn't have any rend but it's got a lot of utility behind it because it's a battle line unit they're chunky they're two wounds each they got a four up armor save and they can do mortal wounds and i want to add that we were only playing a thousand points i didn't have a lot of points to just throw around and try to get other units in there yeah, it's kind of hard because you can't, you have to really weigh the option of, oh, do I want, if Reavers are 80 points each, then I could either have four units of 10 Reavers or I could have Mother in. Yeah. You know? Well, first of all, I have to have a Behemoth. She doesn't have to have a Behemoth. She I just do have to have a Behemoth. The Behemoth. You think to yourself, oh, well, do I want additional blood points to summon stuff in? Because those 40 die, you're halfway to summoning Mother. That's true. Or father, in this case. It's kind of hard to say, oh, well, 
uh, we don't need or we do need. Well, maybe try the other way. Maybe I'll try to take more units and see if I can get enough points to summon Mother in before. Well, I think you'll definitely have a a good time with Reavers because even though they die to a stiff breeze, it, it almost feels like you want them to die and your opponent's like, oh no, I killed another 10 Reavers. And even if Mother doesn't come out, I found that at 7 blood points being able to summon in like 20 blood letters of corn those things are so good at in a group of 20 on turn four when they just emerge onto the board and you're like okay well i've got 20 bodies all of a sudden on this objective it's turn four you've got only about a third of your army left yeah try to try to take it back and Heck, that won me a game when I was playing Blades of Corn against somebody's, um, I was playing against Justin's Lumineth. I was trying to capture one last objective and I just, I summoned 20 of those guys and threw them on that objective and looked over at him and he was like, well, crap, I don't have that many bodies to throw at you. You know what I mean? He just couldn't kill enough of them or put enough of his guys on because you can kind of move block in Age of Sigmar. I really like that seven blood point summoning move right there. Yeah. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about how I like to build armies. This is something that I've refined over the years. And when I was younger, I can remember building Dark Eldar armies that were very, very broken. They were very tournament sort of, that's what you would bring to a tournament. It would be like, oh, three Ravagers and all dark lances no they would have all disintegrators and just cup warriors and raiders and like things that would maybe you would see in a tournament and the reason why is because uh, i i lost a lot when i first started playing i lost almost every single game i played almost all the time and when i won it was like i i felt like it was by the very skin of my teeth like every time but i i did lose a lot and i got tired of losing and i I was so tired. I was like, man, this is so hard to do. I realized about maybe about the 30th game or 40th game in, you know, after about a year, year and a half that I really needed to start trying to have fun in losing or trying to have fun during the game and not worry so much about who wins and who loses. Because when I thought about the games that were the most, that stood out the most to me, it was like, the very first game that I ever played on my birthday was a game that stands out to me clearly to this day. And I do not remember who won, but I Mm -hmm. know that I love the game so much that I can remember the, you know, his Soros warriors charging into, I think he charges Soros warriors into my archers and maybe they fell apart. And then I like counter charged with some knights that were in the, but that, was what really stands out to me. Not who won, not who lost. And then later, I can remember in later games, I had like, you know, I had saved up enough to buy an Archon and it was that old metal model with the big, huge claw. I loved that model so much. And he popped out of a a transport with some Incubi and when I finally got some actual Incubi and he slaughtered just two units I can remember thinking, looking over my, I, I remember I did lose that game, but when I, when I did that, my opponent was like, huh, I guess they're really good. And I was like, heck yeah, they're good. So anyway, that was how I used to build armies. But nowadays I tend to build them like this. I say, okay, well let me grab just one of each unit, regardless of whether it's good or not. 
uh, I always usually grab at least, you know, one of the decent units and then I'll grab one of the other units and I'll say, how can I make this army work? How can I make this army win? How can I make it look nice on the tabletop and look like a cohesive army and look kind of like how, what their narrative is. So like, for instance, when I, when I build my dwarf army, I had one unit of iron breakers. It was like a unit of 20. And then I had one unit of 10 iron drakes, which were really, really good. I had one gyrocopter, one rune Lord, which is, oh my gosh, the rune Lord with the iron drakes together. Oh, it's so deep, so good. So good. And I had like a single unit of demigriff knights with the lances, a single unit of demigriff knights with the halberds. I had a warden king, of course, and and I built like a free guild general and griffin, but I made it a dwarf. It was actually a my dwarven queen. I added in an Arcanaut company because I thought that I really liked the way that they look. I just wanted to replace their helmets with actual dwarf heads, and I think that looked really good. I think it works really well. It does. And then I had like one unit of Endriggers, uh, Endrin Riggers, Endrin Riggers, and I had one unit of Endrin Riggers, which are like the dwarves with the giant dirigible on their back which i thought were i thought it was really cool because they shoot nail guns nail guns yeah they have nail guns they they've got rivet guns that they use to like repair ships that have been damaged mid-flight and that's what they shoot at you and i thought that was so cool yeah it sounds really cool so i had a unit of those guys so i i tend to try to have one unit of each thing and then i think to myself how am I going to use that? You know, what are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? What can I use it for? And why would I want to use it for that? So a lot of times I would put my iron breakers in a big old set right in the middle of the smack in the middle of the board. And I'd say, I dare you to charge these guys. And I just tell my opponent, I dare you to charge them. Um, I'd use my Arcanaut company. Honestly, they would just run up and try to take an objective or block. I would use it. I would sacrifice them almost every game. Uh, they're pretty good. They've got a four up save the, while they're capturing an objective, they get bonuses. I really like them a lot. And then I, once the, my opponent took the bait because they had to, you know, if you, if you've got guys on objectives, your opponent has to attack them in some way, shape or form. And a lot of times it's melee. So if they were destroyed or mostly destroyed. Then I'd counterattack with my engine riggers and I'd counterattack with um, my Demogriff Knights, and that would be kind of it. And that's how I used them because they're very fast. And then a lot of times with my Gyrocopter, I would throw that thing right up in the middle of their army. I'd use it for a lot of move blocking because it's very fast. It only has five, or I'm sorry, it only has four wounds, but it could do some damage. And it's scary because when I, <laughs> when I, when I, pushed it up and I said, okay, well the steam gun is going to just come out and it's going to shoot everything within eight inches in that unit. And my opponent would kind of look at me and they'd lose one or two guys, but they'd be like, oh my gosh, I have to take this thing out. I don't know. I always thought it was a good sort of distraction carnifex that really wasn't a carnifex, if that makes sense. So that's kind of how I built that army. And that's how I built almost all my other armies. Like my undead army, for instance, the one that I face Renee in, in this other, in this next battle, it's got like one vampire. It's got one zombie dragon. It's got one unit of zombies, one unit of skeletons and one unit of zombie dogs. Can't remember what they're called, but I call them zombie dogs. Mm -hmm. They're zombie dogs. 
one unit of Argeist. You know what I mean? And I, I try to take that and say, how can I use this unit? If I had only zombies, if I had just because zombies are good, if I had only zombies, why would that be a bad thing? Why would taking one unit of zombies out and putting one unit of Argeist in be a good thing? What can I use them for that I can't use zombies for? That's how I like to build a lot of my armies. And that is what we did with the Born Army is we looked at what I had because I had a lot of like random stuff that I collected over the years. Like I bought a Gore Chosen box long ago and I bought this or that or the other thing or maybe traded for some stuff. So we had some things and I said, okay, well, what don't we have? And let's just buy that. And then you can run whatever you want. And there you go. Well, I mean, we did buy the Wrathmongers because they just were Wrath cool. Wrathmongers are good. And they look cool. Yeah. I mean, you already had the Blood Secretor. We had to put them together. I had two Blood Secretors. One was already put together and painted. For the wallet, you you know, you have to use what you got and can't oh. go out and buy everything new i'll tell you what she uh she keeps me in check i try it's also how i play i like to play when i think of a an army of undead that are marching into battle i don't think that there's only zombies and like one vampire because that's just not how it works there's always like there's always like zombie dogs in the background and bats vargais coming out of the sky and skeletons marching along you know one of the earliest movies that i can remember watching that really put me in the warhammer frame of mind was army of darkness did you watch Hmm. that i think i've seen it yeah with bruce campbell yeah and he he screws up the the uh magic words he's like klaatu verata and and um and then you know, the army of dead comes over and they, they march in these ranks and they have like flutists and drummers and stuff. And they've, Oh, so great. It it reminded me of a Warhammer siege. That's what it reminded me of. What do you like to see in your opponent's army when you sit across from the table? I never really thought about it. I like to see variety. I don't want to see somebody running five units of the same unit. That's going to eat my face. Just because they're good, I want to see variety. I want to be able to play against a variety of units. I kind of agree. And one thing that I never want to do, I never want to sit down and somebody's, oh, what are you playing? And I'm like, oh, I'm playing this. And then I just see this look of disgust on their face and they just roll their eyes and like, oh, I got to play against that. You know, I, I do not like that. And it's one of the reasons why I have a beautifully painted and very awesome looking, and it's my favorite army to play, Deepkin Army. I love Deepkin, but every time I play with them, I feel like a bully. I think we'll have to play some games with them. I would love that because... Maybe I'll play the Deepkin, so there's a little bit of handicap there to start with. Yeah, you can play my favorite army that I absolutely <laughs> love and love the lore of and love the models and painted them up. You go ahead and pay, play that and I'll just, um, I'll cry in the corner and play some other well, army. Well, then you, it's not going to feel like you're clubbing a baby seal because I'll be the club and I'll be hitting myself. <laughs> You'll be hitting yourself. I, I don't want to ever see, I, I hate seeing that from other people. So a lot of times if I do play Deepkin, I'll say, okay, well, let's play two on one. Let's play, how about, how about you grab your friend, 
he grabs a thousand points and you grab a thousand points and I'll grab only a thousand points of deepkin or maybe even 1250 deepkin. And then we'll play together. And I don't care, honestly, if I lose the battle, which normally I would, I just care that they don't have such an uphill battle that it feels like work to them. I don't want it to feel like work to play me or, or my favorite army. I want it to feel good. I want, I want you to be like, Oh yeah, I'm killing these deep King good. And I'll be like, yeah, I'm fighting an uphill battle. I, I don't mind that. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. So same thing with Zinch. Like when I first, I brought out my disciples of Zinch. Uh, I can remember. I love that army. I love the look of it. I love everything about it, but they are miserable to play against because you're like, okay, well, when all my units die, they bring other units up and I've got 10,000 horrors and you can never kill them all. And it's a pain in the butt, isn't it? And then you also, and also then in my turn, I'm like, okay, let me just throw out a billion mortal wounds and there's nothing you can do about it. And ha ha ha. And I can use these stupid dice to do all kinds of other stuff. They really, it was a miserable experience to play against me. And I hated that it was like that. And with the first edition of disciples of Zinch, and even the second one, when it first, when it came out again, I was like, Ooh, maybe they rebalanced it and maybe it won't be so bad on my opponent. And immediately I realized that I just couldn't bring them back to the table for a long time. I just yeah. can't like, let's talk about our narrative because we're not going to live in our own narrative world. We want to live in GW's narrative. We enjoy their lore and we want to live in their narrative, but not so far apart from it that people who read the battle tomes and black library books aren't confused by it. So like I might say, oh, Evangeline, for instance, my vampire lord, she's from a town that's just outside Excelsius, which if people have been reading the lore, they would know, oh, okay, well, that's a town. I mean, that's a city. Well, I wanted to say when you were talking about in the GW world is we're a little armies and our characters are little specks in GW's world. So GW's world's out there revolving around and we're just little specks revolving with it. Exactly. Like we're never going to place ourselves in Arcan the Black's mighty boots or anything. We're, we're more about like, okay, well we've got a war band of blood sworn with mother and father, which are two bloodthirsters that are sort of like soulless mates. I would say exactly. soulmates, but they're actually soulless. So they're soulless mates. <laughs> That's kind of our narrative approach to things. So whenever you guys hear us talk about our armies, there will always be based in GW's worlds and GW's IP because I like it. Maybe I didn't like it quite so much at first when AOS first came out because I thought it was very high fantasy and it was kind of a little, a little too high in the sky. But now that we're getting to boots on the ground and we've got maps of the mortal realms like wow that's so awesome and same thing for 40k i love the fact that we can point at specific sectors and say well, my guys who come from this sector and this world that they were fighting on because of this reason i love that i love being able to tie my stories in with that well now that we've been giving some background to my army and i know you already have some background for your army prepared Shouldn't we maybe move along into the battle? Okay, we can move on to the battle. So do you want to give any kind of intro to the prequel to the battle, your Evangeline? Oh, yeah. I wrote a, a little while ago because this was 
we I used this army to test the new Path to Glory before we did an AOS league at the store at High Tide Games. I, I was like, oh, there has to be some sort of like a backstory behind who my vampire is and what she's doing and why she is what she is because I always felt like there has to be. And I wanted to also pick a a dynasty that I didn't think that most people would pick, not because I need to be like a unique flower or anything. I actually don't care about that at all. I just wanted to play something a little bit different that maybe somebody wouldn't exactly see coming. They would be like, Oh, you're Vircos, right? Because they get really good abilities. I'm like, no, no, I'm not Vircos. I'm actually Avangori. And they're like, what does that do? I'm like, ah, funny. You should ask. So yeah, I, I decided to go Avin Avangori because it really, synced up with her backstory with the dog and how she sort of has a a last shred of humanity in her. And that's, and that's the only thing holding it together. So I wrote a little bit of an intro to it and then I decided, Hey, let me go ahead and record it for the podcast as it was sort of like me testing the equipment and testing everything out. And I was trying to figure out how to edit all this stuff with this podcast, it doesn't come really naturally to me. I just, I had to fiddle around with everything. Yeah. And that was a good way to do it. So I was like, oh, I'll record it and then I'll put it in between our game. Uh, so that way you guys could hear what her sort of introduction is to who she is and why she has this army behind her. Now, as for the blood secretor, why he has his army behind him. You mean mother? No, no, the blood secretor, the the guy holding the portal of skulls. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not his army. It's mother's army. Okay. Yes. He's just along for the ride. I could definitely understand that. Now, how, but how did she go about getting this band of crazed lunatics, do you think? Well, I mean, she's mother. She's corn. They just, they're fanatics. They're going to follow her. Yeah, but one does not simply put down one's tools one day and think, you know what? I'm going to be a corn fanatic. Warrior? <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I, I have dreams of being a corn warrior one day. That's running through meadows. I don't know if I've really thought about how she came to have followers. Do you want to know how they do it in the official like stories? They, they're a little bit light on the details, but that was one thing that they really fleshed out in the beginning was how a how a normal person becomes a corn warrior. Oh. It starts mostly with a raid because that was corn and all of the other gods were invading the realms and especially in Akshi, the realm of fire, corn corn uh, invaded that realm and would um sort of they were an apex predator on any of the human settlements near there. And a lot of times they would run around raiding for well, for anything, for flesh, for skulls, because they ate human flesh. And a lot of times they would capture people who fought even a little bit back. They would capture them and they would bind them in like irons and chains and they would subject them to torture pretty much. They would ritualistically scar them and then they would try to get them hungry enough that they would eat their relatives flesh. They would And at that point they would become sort of crazy enough to be an initiate for like a reaver. Yeah. But thinking about mother, I don't think she would be doing all this. I think she more likely maybe 
kind of adopted followers from father? Father is into skulls and mother is into blood. Father is yeah, but I don't blood. see her doing the dirty work. Like, I think she, maybe the blood secretor does the bloody work. Like, she wouldn't go in and raid towns. But Oh, no, definitely not. But followers that have already been, you know what I mean? Like, there has, there's always going to be, they don't just appear out of nowhere. There's always going to be followers around. Yeah, I guess that's true. And So he, she could have stolen or adopted a blood secretor from father. Here, mortal. And the stick. Told, it's a portal of skulls. And, this blood, and then she told this blood secretor, hey, go build my army. If you are a mortal follower of corn and you run across another blood band, like another band of cornate followers or, you know, cornate warriors, usually they would fight mostly to the death. But I feel like when one of them has a bloodthirster behind them and, and that guy's like, hey, you're with us now, the other band's probably going to, well... There's definitely going to be violence, but most of them will probably just fall in line. Exactly. After the really crazy ones die. I mean, she does love her blood. She absolutely does. Hey, do you think maybe maybe one of the ways that she converts new followers is that she uh, she has this like blood sequence where she forces them to drink a little bit of her demonic blood and it makes them all crazy inside? Yeah. Because when I was reading some I of the, I was oh. reading some of the other lore, and it talked about how a lot of times in the old world, followers of chaos would ingest warpstone, oh, or chaos stone. She wouldn't force anybody to do anything. She would make others force them. So ah. she would make her blood secretor do it. And there's this there's this recurring thing that I keep thinking about, and it's because. Chaos seems to have this radiation about it. Like it's not just a power. You you say, oh, well, chaos is a power that corrupts. Well, how does it corrupt? And it feels like radiation. So the longer you're near it, the sicker you are. And sometimes it's not, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's always a sickness, like a cancer of the body. It could be like a cancer of the mind, like the longer you're near it, the more your men, your your mental acuity is broken down, the more that the blood pounds in your veins yeah. and things like that. And and it might also mean physical mutation too, extra arms or like rippling muscles where before you maybe weren't quite as muscular. It feels like a radiation. And I feel like anybody that's forced to spend time around mother or father would be exposed to this like primal chaos radiation of corn so maybe you enjoy the radiation theory a little better well that and the blood i mean i think it's reasonable oh yeah it's totally reasonable because of all the blood that her blood would be almost like intoxifying like even if it's just like a drop in you know a cup of blood like it wouldn't be like there wouldn't be a lot of her blood. Maybe they got a little bit of her blood at one point in time in this chalice and they just kept refilling it with more blood, but it doesn't really matter because it still has like yeah, traces of what she was in it. Exactly. That's pretty crazy. Yep. There maybe that's how father gets his followers as well. Like she is a progenitor of all the fo- all the followers. Yep, he's <laughs> father's like, "Hey, gnaw on this bone." Everybody's like, 
uh, yes, sir. Because he has got this enormous axe. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, he's the father is the blood, blood uh, sorry, bloodthirster of unfettered fury. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's a little fun. backstory of the corn army. Yep. So maybe we should just go ahead and get right into the battle. Yeah, I agree. Uh, without further ado, please uh, stay tuned for the introduction. And then after that, we'll talk about the battle. I was turned two hours before my last dawn. I was hauling water out of the small stone well by the light of a smoking torch just outside of our town. Rufus was with me, faithful hound that he was. How he didn't see the thing coming up, I don't know. I didn't hear the unnatural thing come up on me either, so maybe I shouldn't be so hard on the hound. Out of my way, girl, it growled, and a bloody hand grabbed me by my head and flung me away. Its claws tore into my cheek and head. Darkness clouded my vision. I tumbled to a stop and had just enough time to catch a glimpse of it before it tumbled down the well. Its face was a bloody ruin, deep gashes drawn across pale white skin. A huge chunk of its scalp was peeled off, showing the pink white of the bone beneath. It had almost a dozen arrows piercing it. Its armor clattered in an unholy cacophony against the stone of the well as it fell, and then I saw what it was running from. A wave of darkness and bone washed over the well. The edge of it caught my boot, twisting and breaking my left leg, and rolling me over in a riptide of violet, inky magic. In my last bit of consciousness, I heard Rufus yelp. When I awoke, I found myself changed. The night was mine and a lingering hunger strained my faith. Sigmar, forgive what I did to my village. I hardly remember it now. Rufus was there, though much larger than he once was. The roiling wave of death turned him into a horrid creature of bone and sinew, but I still love him. He's all that I have left of my former life, and I cling to him as though he were the faithful hound of old. It was two nights after my village blackout, that what I now know as the grave tide came back. It follows and hunts me, as I now know it followed and hunted my progenitor. The Null Stone Brotherhood also hunts me, as they hunt all of my kind. If I can get far enough away from Excelsis, I may survive. I know that I exist, I hunt, and I am myself most nights. I did not ask for this curse, but now that is enough. Alrighty, so we just finished playing a game, 1,000 points, and I figured we'd come on and talk about it. It was my Soul Blight Grave, Grave Lords with Evangeline versus her Blades of Corn with Mother. And let me ask you, what did you think about Mother? The one with the whip and the axe. She works pretty well. If I can get the whip off, it does some crazy stuff, some good damage. But I don't know, I kind of like father with the other bloodthirster yeah you're really missing that d6 damage huh so the armies i had a vampire lord that was vangeline and i had 40 zombies three vargas 10 dire wolves and of course my zombie dragon rufus can't can't leave home without rufus right oh and uh, i had a endless spell for suffocating grave tide but i forgot completely about it and just never used it all battle 
What did you have during the battle? So, of course, I had Mother, which is a bloodthirster of unfettering fury. And I had uh, Blood Secretor. I had 10 Blood Warriors. I had 10 Blood Reavers and another set of 10 Blood Reavers. And then five Wrath Mongers. Yeah, say that 10 times fast, right? So let's talk a little bit about what the story is for this. We both sort of discovered six ossified dragon eggs, like bone dragon eggs. And I want them because, well, they're little baby dragon eggs. And I'm very interested in making a couple more Rufuses if I can. And maybe even uh, another version of Rufus. Mengleen's very odd like that. Uh, What does Mother want them for? Mother just wants them because they're bones. She wants all the skulls she can get. And if she can't get skulls, then any bones will do. Yeah, maybe she wants to give it to father as a nice gift. No, no, I guess mother and father do not. They don't give gifts. uh, Yeah, so (laughs) mother, she's very interested in blood. And father is very interested in, in skulls. By the way, that's that's sort of the making them and and mother is that axe and um what is it axe and whip bloodthirster and father is the unfettered fury one the one with the big old two handed axe that's pretty crazy so anyway the two armies find these uh these eggs and Evangeline finds three and mother finds three and then they sort of meet up looking for more and Evangeline's like you've got my three eggs and mother's like. <laughs> you know because it's mother and Evangelina's like and then they both fight (laughs) but let's just say we both know that the other was trying to take our eggs away from us so that's the narrative behind this mission in a second i'll get into what the book says the mission is supposed to be about so oh and and not to mention the whole time we're doing this it's at night that was the twist that we rolled nighttime which didn't really matter. Well, it kind of mattered because I couldn't I couldn't throw magic at you because I couldn't see you were more than 12 inches away from me. She's over there nodding her head. In the first round, yeah, you were more than 12 inches away. So yeah, that kind of hampered me just a little bit, but it's fine. I, it, was, it was nighttime pretty much the whole time because we completely forgot to roll to see if it was daytime. And once we were in combat, I guess it really didn't matter anyway. Yeah, that was that was a really fun battle though. We played a weird mission. I haven't really played any open play in the new AOS 3.0 yet. So that's what I kind of wanted to do today. And it actually turned out pretty well. We, you know, we rolled this weird territory where it was like the attacker was like halfway up the board and then defender was only like seven inches from the back, you know, because we were playing on a small size board and all. And then we rolled loot and plunder, which is like place three objectives, three in each player's territory. And then you try to loot the other player's objectives. And once you loot all the other player's objectives, you you win. So that's the one that we played. I don't know if it felt pretty strategic because the entire time I was really trying to push hard. I got the first turn and I pushed up hard in the center, charged with my zombies, charged with a, a bunch of hounds and charged with pretty much everybody that I could and then put Vargeist in her backfield, which was like, hey, let's put the pressure on everywhere and these Vargeists are going to come and steal your stuff, so you better hold on to it. Uh, what did you think about that first turn? Um, well, it definitely didn't go in my favor since you got first turn. So I was on the defensive, even though technically I was considered the attacker in the uh, battlefield. So I was playing defensive the whole time, so I didn't get any charges off the first round, obviously. So yeah, it it was bloody. Well, I will say, the only thing that I really killed the first round, I killed a lot of of blood reavers, but they kind of are supposed to die. 
I was real surprised. I only killed like one Wrathmonger and I think I killed like two Blood Warriors, like two and a half Blood Warriors. And, and she really clapped back hard. I'll tell you, she murdered the first turn, probably 12 or 15 zombies. I can't remember how many. Well, you start with 40, so it put a little bit of a dent, but not that much. But yeah, I, I mean, they're pretty squishy. So I got, I killed pretty many of them. And I think I killed maybe two of your dogs. I don't remember exactly now, but I was whittling them down slowly as well. But then you kept on bringing stuff back. Yeah, those dogs, they do not die. That was crazy. They just... Well, most of the problem is your guys are pillow fisted and they have threes and fours. And the other thing is I've got 20 wounds just sitting there staring at you. And I guess you had the opportunity to charge them with the, with mother, but mother went after bigger prey as I recall, right? Yeah. She definitely had her sights on Rufus. Poor Rufus. He, he did last three whole combats with her. I had to pretty much give him command points, feed him command points each turn so that he would live. But uh, he finally went down to her. <sighs> Poor Rufus. So then everybody in the middle kind of ate each other up. Uh, my 40 zombies got whittled down. Her wrathmongers got whittled down and then eventually died over like two or three turns. And mother, after she got done eating Rufus, sped over to the other side of the table, took one of my objectives. The zombies took the other objective, by the way, uh, on her side of the table. And then charged evangeline now evangeline heroically did not die the first round of combat i was so surprised i mean i did find a stour her and i did feed her a command point for all-out defense but man that was crucial her not dying right there allowed me to do so much damage to mother yeah if mother could have killed evangeline in that first um, battle round that they fought i think it would have the game would have gone different. So mother was tied up in combat. So I did get the one objective on his side, but then the zombie dogs were right there to attack mother as well. So mother didn't fare too well. Yeah, she she got hit by a, on my turn, she got hit by a pestilent breath from my, from Evangeline. And that did her in because I rolled five mortal wounds for her. Oh, that was so bad. But the entire time you were actually healing, I'd say, what was it, like three phases in a row you healed Mother up? So at the when she charged Evangeline, she only had like one wound down on her. And that was really hard because I was struggling to get wounds on her and she was healing her up. Oh, that was rough. But on the other hand, my Vargeis were over on her side of the table they charged one unit of blood reavers and took it out over two turns, but mostly what they were doing were, was trying to get her back objectives. What did you think about that? I definitely put a um, twist in it. So I had to be more on the defensive on that side as well. So I couldn't go after your objectives. So I had to keep those blood reavers there to keep the um, Vargais occupied, but yeah, they're not going to last long. So yeah, the, the whole game came down to eventually Funnily enough, who got the fourth battle round turn? Because I had one, two, three, four, five, six dogs left, and I had six dogs and Evangeline, did, or she died. No, she died. She definitely, oh, yeah, that's right. Mo, mo, mother killed her. She stomped all over her. You still had two, um, two of your Vargais, and I think you had like three or four zombies left. They just kept coming back. Yeah, they were hanging out over there in the woods. Anyway, and, but she only had her blood secretor. I think that's all you had, right? Just the blood. At the end of that turn, I was poised to capture one of her objectives, her last objective, if I went first. 
and she was poised to capture uh, both of my objectives as long as she went first because she could have summoned in uh, like 20 blood letters and just taken that objective. Yeah, by this time I had eight summoning points, so I would have been able to get a whole nother unit in, so it would have been helpful, but I did not win the roll off. Yeah, I, I rolled that, that magical six and we called it. Yeah, that's what happened. All right. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Vangeline struggles off the battlefield with her prizes in tow and a crushed up Rufus. Mother is sent back to the Chaos Realms for a little while. And um, fortunately, she does have eight blood tide. She, she ended the battle with eight blood tide points. So she could summon Father and, uh, you know, get a little bit of um, revenge there. Yeah, we might have to have a revenge match. Evangeline dragged the remains of Rufus away. Three extra eggs sat in a pack on her back. They were covered in gore and slime from those crazed heathens. She could feel the spark of amethyst light that connected her to the dead creatures inside, so the lunatics must not have finished their befouling ritual. The blood secretor had gotten away, but she was also able to raise many more followers from the dead around her. She hoped to never see that daemon again, in this life or any other. It was fierce and strong. She still had three ragged holes in her side where its claws tore through her hardened skin like it was a linen dress under the seamstress's blade. Her thoughts turned inward, and she unconsciously wove amethyst magic in a complex pattern. She wondered absently why other casters had to dedicate their lives to learning this magic. It came almost second nature to her, though she could not say how. A mortal digests food without understanding where and how the energy is converted, and she supposed it was the same with creating her companions. The bones that made Rufus began to snap and pop back into place. Soon, he was loping beside her again. From under the remains of a tree, the blood secretor sneered at her. That disgusting creature murdered his flock. Her and her bounding, gag-inducing monstrosity. It was all he could do not to go out and throttle her right then. But no. Mother was gone, somehow taken down by that pack of wolves at her side. He would have to lure her essence back to this realm first. Then... He would report to father and get more of his blood sworn. He watched his enemy drag a pile of bones away as the dead blood sworn began getting to their feet. This unholy abomination would not even allow his tribe the skulls of their fallen. Oh, she would pay. As he picked up his staff, he noticed the portal of skulls vibrating. Maybe he wouldn't have to lure Mother's essence back to summon her. Maybe he just had to... He was cut off mid-sentence as a taloned hand, dark red and dripping gore, reached through the portal. It ravaged his face, ripping off his lower jaw as it tore half his neck out. One of his eyes popped from the grip, and another hand came through the portal. This one tore into his abdomen 
snapping two ribs before finding purchase. The daemon known as Maja tore its way back into this realm, using the blood secretor's body and soul as a tether. As she pulled through, his soul finally shredded into a ripped cacophony of torment. She consumed it, and it tasted like a strawberry that had just turned. Yes, we will report this to Faja, she said, using the correct name for her soulless mate. She snatched the portal of skulls up and began to fly away from the battlefield. She could convince any idiot mortal to hold the thing from the Bloodsworn tribe. All right, now we're going to get into our question and answer segment. So here is the question that we're going to answer this time. How do you deal with a game where you know that it's over by, like, say, the end of turn two, where either you are completely lost or maybe your opponent has completely lost and you both kind of know it, but you wonder, you know, should you should you finish the game? Should you re-rack and start again or... Like, how do you deal with that? And how do you sort of make it fun for your opponent? And let me ask you that question. Like, when you're whooping my butt, Renee, in a game, uh, and I have, like, half my units left, and you still have a lot of strong units left, how do you make that fun for me for the rest of the three turns? You can start with not gloating, not being like, oh, I'm winning. Oh, my gosh, I'm winning. I want to make your opponent feel bad isn't really the question you asked but I was thinking when you were talking about it depends on if you're playing like a path to glory or some kind of campaign you don't want to end it the end of turn two because it has a bearing on what happens to your units that's true uh, because after that turn that really terrible turn and you only have like say half your units left and you know you're sort of losing you could kind of say okay well I'm going to sacrifice the rest of the you know like half of my remaining units And then I'm going to pull my other guys back and try to get that secondary objective, you know, try to complete that artifact quest for power or try to do this or that or the other thing. A lot of times it could be a game of cat and mouse that you create with where you're like, okay, well now I'm going to pull back. I know that the main objective is lost, but we're going to play for, let's see if you can actually get me. Well, secondary objectives, it may not be the battle objectives, but it may be your army's objectives. I agree. And I think that in 40K, they did a really good job with Crusade because their secondary objectives are so different. Your secondary objective might be, hey, kill psychers. And you're like, okay, well, from here on out, I'm just going to do as much damage to the psychers as I possibly can because you get experience points for that. You know the game is lost, but hey, more experience for your your guys. So you kind of don't want to end it on that turn and as long as you maybe still if you're you know you're winning, you can kind of remind your opponent of that. Like if they look kind of dejected and like oh they're they're losing, you can be like, well, hey, you got to remember your secondary objective. Why don't you you know? Yeah, and if you're losing, if you're on this losing side and you you just know that most of your units are gone and everything else is about somewhat gone, 
If your opponent's like, hey, if you just want to end it here, you look at them stone-faced and say, you're never going to kill all my stuff. Or you'll say, oh no, we're playing this out to the bitter end. You're going to table me. I know a lot of people that kind of take that as a challenge and all of a sudden the game doesn't revolve around objectives anymore. All of a sudden it runs around, hey, can you possibly take down all of my units and every single one if I play super well? And sometimes you know, it's well? fun to just kill units like just kill guys like not having to worry about objectives and i've been in the situation a lot i've I've been in both situations a lot where i could tell that oh the game is definitely over (laughs) is i'm i'm definitely gonna wipe the floor with them and a lot of times i'll i'll try to like pull back and not charge their last remaining lord or that's their last remaining hero with just like every unit that I have that I know will just obliterate them off the table. I'll say, oh, okay, well, everybody's going to pull back. And my, my mighty Lord of corn comes forward and challenges your, whatever hero they have left in single combat. I could see the light in their eyes. All of a sudden they're interested because it's like, Hey, you're going to give me a chance to sort of redeem myself. And if I can take down this Lord of corn in single combat, then man, you just given me, a little bit of a victory. And that's really what this game is about is I feel like it's giving your opponents little victories, little narrative victories to say the game was a wash, but man, that, that duel was really cool at the end. Wasn't it? Yeah. I almost had you. i or you got me and I, I can't believe you just barely got it. Ah, oh, it's so great. Yeah. What do you do when you are on, what do you do when you're on the losing end of that, Renee? I'm always on the losing end of that. (laughs) She is not always on the losing end of that. I'll have you know that our game that we played was very close. It It was. It was real close. There wasn't a time until the very end when I was like, oh, she doesn't have a path to victory. I thought she kind of had a path to victory the whole, much of the time. Until she started really losing most of her units, she played very well with her behemoth and took out some key figures of mine. And once those started going down, I I was wondering myself, oh, am I going to have enough units to do the job, capture objectives? I think if Mother could have taken down Evangeline in one round, it would have been different. But Mother was taken down instead. I agree. If she had taken down Evangeline, you would have been able to capture that objective And once you captured that objective and pulled it off the table, then if you had won the roll off, you definitely would have. There's the cat playing in the box again. Like the dang cat he is. That's my cat, little Horace Axiomond. I named him after one of the truest hearted Morneval that I could think of. And he definitely lives up to his name. (laughs) Yeah, that's Horace. Get out of that box, you. Hey, get out of there. Next time we record, we're we're definitely going to have to shut ourselves into the dungeon. We're going to have to close the door so the cats can't get in. I agree. <laughs> Anything that you else you want to talk about that question? No, not really. I just wanted to say that, you know, if you're in a bad spot, there's always a way that you can make it a positive play experience for your opponent. And if you're in a good spot, then... It helps to commiserate with your opponent. It doesn't help to complain about dice rolls. And it helps to make that, give them even a sense that they could get a secondary objective or just a narrative win. You know, just something. 
because otherwise I've had games where I was like, Hey, let's just re rack and go again. And my opponent's like, okay, yeah, this time it'll be different. And, and we've just done that. And both of us were happy about it. And we just kind of forgot that game existed. But I've also had games where we fought to the last man and the, you know, whether or not he'll, he'll go down in the fifth battle round at the very end is what we're laughing and cheering about. So it's always hard when that kind of thing, everybody wants a game that is very close, but it's hard to make a game that's very close unless you, unless you know both of the armies and know the mission, it's hard to do that, you know? Yep. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings. Thank you for listening to Seriously Narrative, a Warhammer podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us for questions, please email us at seriouslynarrativepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com backslash seriouslynarrativepodcast. This episode of Seriously Narrative a Warhammer podcast is protected by the Creative Commons license. If you have any questions about the Creative Commons license, please visit their website at creativecommons.org. Music is provided by Incompetech, created by Kevin McLeod, and used under the Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening.